So how do you provide DevOps capabilities around CI, CD pipelines and automated testing and orchestration and version control and tracking of changes and stuff like that in a platform where you don't have the code base? which is the start of everything. That was Ron Gidron, CEO and co-founder at Xtype. Xtype is the world's first CI/CD platform for ServiceNow and enables true DevOps and VSM or value stream management when working with the ServiceNow platform. I'm super excited about this product and about talking with Ron, so let's get to it. Welcome to this week's episode of Capital Geek. Ron, my friend, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh, thank you for having me. Great being here. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you and get to know you a little better and, and let the audience get to know you and your new company, X-Type. I'm excited about the show today. So where are you joining us from today? Tel Aviv in Israel. I live about 300 meters away from the beach in the beautiful city of Tel Aviv. Great city. You know, a, a month or so ago when we were having the missiles fired over there, your uh, sort of laissez-faire attitude about it was was really wild for me to perceive because, you know, I can't even imagine being this scenario, but you were accustomed to it. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, it, it should be weird and, and, it, and it probably is, but it is what it is. I was, I was also kind of reflecting on it and thinking maybe I'll share it with the audience. I was out on the town with my daughter in the car when the sirens started blowing and we're trained. So we got out of the car and we sat down and we saw those lights of the missiles kind of flying overhead and the Iron Dome missiles kind of flowing towards them. And it's obviously very surreal. And my daughter is, you know, a little nervous. And my reaction was like, wow, those things really work. Just, <laughs> and I know it's strange, but that's... So she's scared about the about the potential missile strike and you're thinking about how cool the technology is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible. That, that, that When you see that, you know, in your face, it's it's incredible. Literally hundreds. Actually, we were talking about it today. Me and Yael were talking about it this morning and she said, you know, it wasn't very pleasant. And I said, I agree. It wasn't, but it it really was amazing. Hundreds and hundreds of things and nothing happened. (laughs) Even your description of wasn't very pleasant just seems sort of understated, you know, for a missile attack. (laughs) How old is your daughter? She's 14 going on 15 now oh wow and it wasn't our first experience so she's had another experience a few years before i have a 13 year old uh julius and i cannot imagine his reaction in a similar scenario i mean it would be a total meltdown um wow well i'm glad you guys came through that all right ron before we get into your company and talk more about that i'd love to sort of start with getting to know you um where you grew up maybe talk about your parents but have you lived in Israel your whole life? I have lived in Israel my whole life. I've had periods throughout my career where I've relocated for a few years. So I've, I've lived in Scandinavia. I've obviously traveled a lot uh, in my career, spent a lot of time in the U.S. on both coasts and, and in Europe. But I, have, I grew up and I've lived in, in Israel all my life. Well, tell me about what it was like growing up there. Did you live in the city or the country? or? Yeah, so I, I grew up on a kibbutz, <laughs> which is... Uh, to the best of my knowledge, they only exist in Israel, and they're, they're small um, communities. The, the history of kibbutzes was, was uh, kind of communist. It was from the early days when, you know, when Israel got started, and there were a lot of uh, refugees from Europe kind of came here, and it was a way of getting by. So they set up these, um, you know, not, you say the word settlement, now it has context. This was, you know, before that. Um, so they set up those kibbutzes to kind of work together. And they shared everything. And it kind of stayed. And I grew up, I, I was born in the 70s, and I, I grew up on a kibbutz. My parents were second-generation kibbutzniks, as we call them. And um, 
you know, we had tiny little homes and, and a lot of fields around us. And I worked on the farm. I, I drove combine harvesters when I was 13 years old. And was it wheat or what were you growing? Uh, we grew cotton. We grew wheat. We grew corn. Uh, we also grew some flowers. And um, yeah, it, it wasn't growing up. I did not kind of imagine being amazed of technology and, and falling in love with it the way I have. That, that's wild. So what did, what did your parents do while you were growing up? So actually, my parents have a lot to do with it. So my, my, my mother was uh, an accountant and a CPA. She ran the, the, the bookkeeping for, for, for the whole enterprise, if you, if you call it that way. And my father, um, I guess you, he was an entrepreneur. He, you know, he brought a factory to the kibbutz. He was like, so we had a farm and we had, and we had dairy farm and, and the fields. And he set up a, an envelope factory. He had managed to convince all the members that we should also have some manufacturing, um, you know, for for a business. And um, he literally built the the biggest envelope paper product factory in Israel that is owned by the kibbutz. Um, and as part of that, he was probably the first one from the kibbutz ever to kind of go abroad. So he would he would fly over like once a year to a you know, like an exhibition or something in the paper industry. And on one of those trips, I got a Sinclair, a ZX81 <laughs> computer. And so that's where the seeds were sown. How old were you then, you think? I was probably about 12 or 13. Wow. And what, what were you able to do on the device? So uh, a Sinclair ZX81 is, is a little plastic keyboard with uh, rubber keys that just had some wires and you would hook it up to a cassette player believe it or not and uh, a tv and then you the cassette would have logo on it and so that would be the ram you would put the cassette in press play and wait for 15 minutes and then on the tv you had this little blinky you know that the, the cursor come up and I had a little booklet and I learned how to program in logo which was programming language that was pre pre basic wow it's yeah, a long time ago yeah that is a long time ago but it's still pretty cool I, I never used one of those devices so I wasn't sure how it worked or or what it did I think my first at home exposure was probably like an early apple you know with educational programs which my mom brought home from the educational co-op for the summer she was a speech pathologist working uh, in public schools. And so during the summertime, she'd bring home our equipment, which was, you know, how I got exposed to it and sort of fell in love with technology. I loved it from first sight. Like everybody else, I programmed Pong. You remember that game? Yes. Uh, <laughs> right? Like, and, and I learned how to do that. And then later on in life, I, I had some more advanced computers. Like uh, I actually didn't have a Mac till about way after I was already working. But um, I remember the early PCs with the three and a half inch floppies later and, you know, uploading a Borland C or something like that with 13 floppy disks. Wow. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, I can remember when some of the Windows applications like .NET, well, before .NET, like VB. Yeah. You know, it was like 30 or 40 floppy disks to load it up. Right. So was, is the, was the kibbutz meant to be self-sufficient? Like you talked about the farmland around it and the dairy farm, the vegetable farms. Was it meant to be sort of self-sustaining? On a kibbutz, generally, the idea is if you're born in a kibbutz, it's it's a you have to be a member of the kibbutz. But if so, my, my both my parents were members, and I was born. When you're born there, it's like you know you you belong. You it's it's yours. And 
generally speaking, people never leave the kibbutz, right? They just they they live on the kibbutz their whole lives, and generation after generation, the kibbutz kind of uh, stays. I mean, we're in 2021, and I know they've had a lot of changes. I mean, I I'd already left the kibbutz almost 30 years ago now, but yeah, I I didn't grow up anticipating the great experiences that came after that. So after the kibbutz, what was next? Yeah, so so interestingly enough, I uh, well in Israel there's a compulsory military service, so I. You know, I went. Uh, I went and I did my my three years. I was an, an infantry soldier, and I got back. And I still love computers, and so I decided to take some programming courses in a nearby town. And then from there, I you know I kind of rolled over to Ben Gurion University, which is a, a university in the south of Israel. It's a pretty reputable university in the very early days of of computer science. And it was the early '90s by then. And I was looking for a job. I, I wanted to try and find a job outside, which was already unorthodox. And I ended up working for a, a small little company that actually I've heard being mentioned on your podcast the other week when you had Dan and, and the other guys and Wes uh, talking PLG and Dan had mentioned Mercury. So I, I'm also one of the Mercury guys. Oh, you're a Mercury Interactive veteran, huh? I am, yes. It was my first job. And, and to bring it full circle to the kibbutz, Mercury was my first job and I stayed there for almost 10 years. And it kind of felt a little bit like that for me. Mercury was just such a good you know, culture and everybody pretty much liked each other. At least that, that was my experience for years. And so Mercury kind of helped me pretty smooth transition. And of course, it exposed me to the world. And I started uh, working in, in, uh, in R&D, but very quickly I did pre-sales and I started you know, traveling for work and getting exposed to our world that we live in today. And uh, I never looked back. It was awesome. You know, it's not talked about nearly often enough, but for a lot of us that grew up in small towns or inner cities and didn't have an opportunity to travel growing up, working in tech can be a great way to open up those possibilities. I mean, when I was with SolarWinds, I saw so many places internationally, so many more places than I did when I was active duty military and traveling for the government. And I think that's one of the really cool things about working in tech when you're young, especially, is, you know, if, if you're hungry, there are opportunities to see the world uh, that are hard to find outside of tech. So I'm, a, I'm what you call a, a tech fanatic for that reason, exactly, especially because I come from Israel. And Israel today is very different from the Israel I grew up in a long time ago, in the sense that it's a it's a very big tech hub. There's, you know, hundreds and thousands of startups here, and it's it's already pretty well known for for being a, a good tech hub. And, and it wasn't always like that. I just remembered there's another piece of information about the kibbutz that is very relevant to my life, and that's where I got my English. So English obviously is, you know, is a very important part of doing pre-sales, doing marketing, doing you know, product work outside of Israel. And I actually learned my English on the kibbutz back in the 80s and the 90s. There was uh, a movement, there's a way to see Israel, which was called volunteering. So there were little organizations all over the world, some American, some Scandinavian, some European, and, and so on, where young kids, usually in their 20s, you know, come and volunteer on a kibbutz. So basically, you have to pay for your flight ticket and you come and work and live on the farm the kibbutz will you know give you accommodation food you know everything that and and basically and you work in return you work for six hours a day four days a week and it was just a very economic way of experiencing something different so in the late 80s and 90s there were a lot of volunteers coming to Guam and I was exposed to a lot of cultures as a kid and of course they loved it because they get to pick oranges or you know be out in the field and Israel's sunny and, and like that so I learned a lot of a lot of my English there but it's not just the English 
English. It's also the exposure to different cultures and different ways of thought. And so that also kind of built in me a drive to go and see the world. And then tech came about and it just made it happen. And we've been friends ever since. Yeah, th that's awesome. It, it's, it's interesting how tech has driven uh, adoption of the English language because it seems to be sort of where a lot of tech originates, you know, here in the U.S., and so it kind of becomes a default business language in tech in ways it hasn't done in other industries, I think, which, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, Israel is, is known for its startup nation reputation. There are a lot of young companies here that get started by Israelis of all ages. And I tell you, pretty much from day one, Israeli entrepreneurs will email each other at work using English. Although only Israelis in the conversation. And it has something to do with um, that mental preparation, that mental sort of focus that the markets, global markets, speak English. So the fact that we all speak Hebrew is nice, but the business language is English. And, and you see a lot of English talk, especially on email, even between Israelis in the, in the tech. I love the fact that you started in development, but then moved to sales engineering because... It's so hard to find great sales engineers who have the technical background and have that perception. And you don't find many people that start out in engineering or in dev that want to do sales. You know, a lot of people, if you're in engineering, sales just feels like a dirty taste in your mouth. And so I, I like that you did that. What, what happened after you left Mercury Interactive? They sold to HP, right? Yeah, I left a little bit before that. And so I... I I spent the next 10 years after Mercury Interactive in the application performance management space. I worked for a company called Precise, which was a database monitor for Oracle and later end-to-end -end monitoring with Java monitoring. It was the early days of root cause analysis, if you will, and proactive monitoring. We call it AI ops today. So I, I was there and then I worked for another startup that did a, a very advanced uh, transaction tracking technology. It was called Optier. It was more focused on the banking industry and ended up being part of Goldman. And roughly about 10 years ago, I moved into the DevOps space. And I started off uh, with a, a startup in Israel called Nolio at the time that did a release automation product. It actually was a, was an automation product that was capable of doing everything. The use case of release was chosen to kind of lead the way. And after that, um, I had worked for a company called UC4 out of Austria in leading and building release automation again. The company then was called Atomic. Eventually got sold to, to CA Technologies and I spent uh, a lot of time there. Yeah, until X-Type started. It's a small world in tech. You know, Dan Schoenbaum uh, introduced us, and thanks, Dan, for doing that. I really appreciate it. But as you're talking about Precise, I think we've discussed this before, but, you know, I've worked with that team as well and actually looked at some of your code uh, because we acquired Precise while I was at Idera running strategy and product. It's just really, really a small world in tech that you can find this many, you know, short degrees of separation. It is. I think also, you know, I when I look at it now, I look back, I think I kind of stayed focused pretty much because, you know, people will shift, you know, maybe a little bit, you'll do some networking or maybe some folks have gone to build a very successful consumer businesses, insurance companies, et cetera. I kind of stayed 
in lane, the enterprise and the data center and, and everything around that and the, the we call SDLC, the life cycle part of it. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And I can kind of understand, now that I know your background, sort of the how and why of, of why your new company came about. But doing DevOps 10 years ago, I mean, it was a really new part of, of organizations and just starting to become a, a well-known practice 10 years ago. Yeah, I remember, and I mean, there's, I've, I just recently, someone sent me a video of me talking about this in 2012. And actually yesterday I was uh, talking on email to a, a CEO that I worked with back then. And I remember him asking me about DevOps. We were in a car in Austria, driving off to some little village where the headquarters of this company was. And he was asking me about DevOps and he was saying, Ron, you know, when's this going to get big? And I said, I think it, I, I said, I think we're, you know, five to 10 years out till it gets really big. Now we are 10 years past that. I had never imagined it, it would get this big. <laughs> I knew it was getting big, but I had no, no idea. So the, 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 the reason though, the reason I looked at it was actually because of, I don't know if, if anyone in the crowd remembers this, the Agile Manifesto. What I remember is it started with, like, with dev and we value shipping over documenting. I, I can't even remember it, but it was a pretty cool developer-oriented manifesto that came out of, uh, I think, uh, Belgium. And it was very clear to me that developers are adopting this, like, you know, we do small and quick. And it was very clear to me that it's like a fire hose that's going to get turned on operation because me coming from the background of testing and release and monitoring in production, I knew what everybody knows, that operations and development have a wall between them. I mean, it's, it's kind of common knowledge now for DevOps folks, but back then it wasn't. But it was very clear to me that they're just going to open the fire hose and ops not going to be able to keep up. And this is where automation became a bigger part of, of my interest and what I do. I'm going to read the manifesto now. The manifesto for agile software development. We are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. Through this work, we have come to value individuals and interactions over processes and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, responding to change over following a plan. That is, while there is value in the items on the right, we value the items on the left more. Very, very fascinating. I'm not sure I've ever actually read the original manifesto. And to give some credit, the author list for this is really long. But it looks like uh, Kent Beck, Jay Sutherland, and Ken Schwaber were the sort of first three listed. So I assume they were, they were key members of the team that wrote that manifesto. I don't think that a single day goes by when I don't say the word DevOps or speak to somebody who's doing that or speak to a portfolio company who's trying to hire a DevOps person. And for me, I think DevOps is one of those transformational practices that is really moving the industry forward, very similar to PLG. Because when I think about product-led growth, it's about sort of allowing our software companies to be authentic in the way we build and sell software in that we're we're providing value day one we're we're asking for a minimum amount of data back in return for that value and it's it's sort of like a super agile way to build and operate the whole company and i think as we move forward you know nowadays if i'm going to start a tech company everyone in the company is going to be sort of a developer 
I mean, they might be using a low-code, no-code interface if you're in marketing doing email workflows and things like that. But we're still effectively writing code, even though we may not be typing out syntax. And I think that authenticity, that purity of vision is, is why I like DevOps and PLG so much. It just feels like we're getting back to the roots of building things that provide immediate value and seeing an immediate ROI. I, absolutely. And, and I actually, so my kind of view on this is that DevOps, while I, I am a living, breathing DevOps persona, uh, it, it might sound a little strange if I say that sometimes I have problem with the words just because it has come to mean so many different things to different people. It's very confusing. So when you say DevOps, a lot of people will think, you know, oh, 20,000 different open source tools, and you can name the, the big ones very easily. And then other people will say, oh, it's about culture or it's about everyone being a developer. But I think the essence is, is what you said. Society is evolving, and tech is driving a lot of that evolution, if you will, and with some revolutions in the way. And you've seen giants, you know, like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon, kind of use technology, exploit the technology to, to build enormous things. And neither of these companies could grow to these sizes if they would still be using the 90s mentality. It's not even about technology. The technology then facilitates it, right? Facilitates that. And you mentioned, hey, a lot of everyone's coding. A lot of people, you know, they might even do low code and no code. We'll get to talk about X-Type, I hope, in a, in a second. But a, kind of the secret <laughs> that, that we follow is that there are a lot of developers existing in enterprises today that... You know, don't work in R&D, they'll, they'll work in IT or they'll work in marketing sometimes and are not seen as developers and are underserved. And that's, I mean, we'll, we'll get to X-Type in a second. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about it now. So you founded a new company called X-Type. You have two co-founders. Maybe let's, let's first talk about what the company does and yeah, Peter and Toby and, and sort of why this is the company you've decided to go out on your own and, and start. When you've had a lot of opportunities in the past to do this, like why now? I think I read this in Peter Thiel Zero to One, where he says every startup has a secret. You know, if you find a secret and your secret is good, we're going to tell it the whole world, then it's, it's a reason. So the secret that was becoming apparent to us is, is that point that I just made, that while DevOps and, you know, development is, you know, ubiquitous, Everyone, you know, regardless of what you're building today, basically, and I'm talking about the world of R&D, of, of, you know, bespoke products, etc. Regardless of the programming language of choice for the project or, you know, the end OS or device that things go on and whether you use containers or, or anything else even monoliths, the DevOps world is kind of given to you. When you start a project today, you'll be thinking about CICD. You'll be thinking about deployment. It kind of comes in with the project. And if even if you have bigger projects that, that are like modernization projects or, you know, or monoliths that are being worked on, then DevOps will get plugged underneath it. It's become so huge, as, as you and I had mentioned. Then we saw there's another side of enterprise that is platform development. It's not new. It's been around forever. Uh, I mean, CRMs and ERP systems, et cetera, have been around forever. And they are the way that 
Alana Enterprises are managed. Without them, you can't do Salesforce is a great example. ServiceNow that we focus on is also, you know, become almost ubiquitous for enterprises. And in that world of platform development is where our secret lies. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of developers developing in these platforms. And because they work within the platform, they don't have access to the fundamental capabilities of the open world. So when we started Xtype, we were just thinking, yeah, you know, this is an open source integration project, right? We'll integrate Git, we'll integrate Jenkins, we'll integrate testing tools and, and, and what have you. And when we started talking to users about it, we then realized that it wouldn't work. So it was not a coincidence that none of the DevOps tool chain, as it's become come to be known, works natively in any one of these platforms. It is because platform per se does not operate on a code base, right? <laughs> the, the code base is with the vendor and the, the enterprise that the customer will get the platform for it. So I'll, let me give an example to make it clear for, you know, for folks listening. So I, I'll just talk about ServiceNow because ServiceNow is an ITSM primarily. And for you ServiceNow folks out there, ServiceNow does a lot more. It always starts with ITSM. And so IT service management is it's basically a set of applications to manage IT. Where are your computers? What's running where? How are the networks done? There's a whole notion of change requests. And you know, it's a system for managing IT. In a, at a very general high level, at a very large enterprise scale. And you would think, okay, it sounds like a, a standard system, and that's what ServiceNow does. It'll give you a platform that does that for you. Of course, the way that IT is managed in different enterprises is a little different. So, you know, even two banks in the same country will never have an exact thing. So, so the platform always needs to be customized. And maybe that's the first sort of secret. That's where people kind of shift it off to the side and don't see that it's development. That's the flashlight I want to put on and say, those customizations, well, what do you mean by customizations? You look into it, you see a bit of JavaScript code or a bit of you know, lightning code or what have you. And our secret is that is code. And you know there are tens of people working in this project and it's business critical, but it doesn't have access to moving fast, it doesn't have access. So the business owners, the CIOs, our message to them, and when we ask them, is very simple. Hey, the, what's the value of this platform for your organization? It's always very large. These are you know, core, core, core enterprise you know, uh, systems. Well, what does it mean for you if you could accelerate that crazy numbers, 300X? And of course, in the beginning, they think you're crazy. And then as you explain and you show that it actually, I mean, look, this has just happened out there, it could happen here. Yeah, that's that's where X-Type sort of like was born as like, all right, we're going to actually build this. And we went through a, a long phase of trying to understand how to crack that problem. So how do you provide DevOps capabilities around CI, CD pipelines and automated testing and orchestration and version control and tracking of changes and stuff like that in a platform where you don't have the, um, the code base, which is, you know, that's where the start of everything. So for anybody out there who's, who's listening and checking this out, uh, the company is xtype.io, xtype.io. And, you know, as I've gotten to know you, Ron, I didn't really understand the severity of the problem uh, out there with working with these platforms. But the last few months from working with Artem over at TestRigger, uh, who I think you've, you've spoken to as well, and with working at you, you know, in platforms like Salesforce and ServiceNow and others, you're right, there's a tremendous amount of code being written. And it's sort of counterintuitive because we take our most qualified developers 
we put them in a in a in a dev organization and give them the easy the best tools to make their jobs easier but we take our less skilled usually sort of part-time developers maybe people in in it or in a service management role who probably don't have 10 15 20 years of coding background ask them to build on these platforms and then don't give them any tools and so it's really wild because when you think about how a traditional dev team works through a CI/CD process and DevOps, we have spent a lot of time and money to make that as efficient and reliable and predictable as possible. But on the platform side, we're sort of in caveman days. It's, we're just getting started with how organizations can think about this. So I, th- I think it's a brilliant opportunity. I'm super excited about what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, we, we obviously, we see it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so, I mean, I got to tell you a story uh, from a, a customer uh, meeting yesterday I, that really, I, I, I've never had a better sort of example. So as part of what X-Type does, we have plugins to Jira uh, because uh, while the, the ServiceNow developers that we target work within ServiceNow, many times the organizations will have a standard for project tracking and managing, and many times that's just Jira. It, it, it's not the only choice, but that's the one that we see a lot. So we have a plugin. So we have a plugin for Jira that basically syncs, uh, you know, the, the project tracking data, so we can integrate that with the the CI/CD, the work the work items, etc. It's a very simple plugin. It's free. It just pushes out data from Jira to Xtype, and then we kind of connect that to to a ServiceNow dev lifecycle story. Uh, and of course, we work with the ServiceNow folks. They know us. They do all the, you know, X-Type maintenance. They installed it. They, they did everything themselves. But the Jira part, they don't own. So the Jira admins wanted to know what this plugin does before they put it on. That's fair. So we got on a call with our ServiceNow uh, champion and the person who runs Jira for that organization. He told me, they he told us, I'm sorry, they have 800 developers using their server. It's on-prem and they have roughly about 3,000 people using Confluence, which just a data point, not relevant for us. So that's why he really wants to know. We're like, sure, we'll, you know, we'll tell you. And he started asking us questions, trying to understand why we need to sync Jira issues with ServiceNow tickets. And at some point, it became clear to me that he just doesn't know they, they have 30 developers in that organization developing code. So I asked him and, 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 and two team leads from ServiceNow. So I asked him, I said, are you aware that there are 30 people working for, I'm not going to name <laughs> here, working for uh, this lady and that gentleman in your organization developing? And the answer was no, right? He didn't, the minute he figured that out, it was very clear to him and all the questions were gone. And, but I mean, that's, that's the secret I'm talking about. Even within the organization, right? Someone that manages, you know, eight, hundreds of developers, completely unaware that there are dozens of others that work in another department. Didn't even conceive of it. I, I talked to an organization last week where there was a, a senior AE, a sales executive, who was coding and building microsites with their own containers for every customer he worked with. So rather than just send a quote or something like that, they he actually built a little microsite that had a project plan embedded in it to track where they were with the project and you know when the, the order would come in. And he did it for every customer. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, you know, we've got developers in sales who are using their skills to make the sales process easier. And I mention that because I think sales is about as far away from engineering as you can get. And for at least the last 20-ish years, I have noticed that our marketing teams are doing a lot of development, a lot of coding, a lot of data science work. 
and and now to see it come full circle so i really can't think of a part of an organization let's think about this engineering and product of course are going to be doing code marketing's writing code sales is writing code uh, finance and operations is certainly writing code you know is there any part of the organization where that skill set is not valuable and i i don't think there are, there is um it's hard to get by in any role in a tech company without at least some basic coding skills and the ability to write SQL queries and things like that. I, I, I totally agree. And, 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 the, and the, the catch, the net of it all is that, and so I, you know, there's a lot of terminology, citizen development, et cetera. And by the way, that, that's not new either. Like low code, uh, who remembers magic software way back when? Oh I mean, yeah. Low code, right? Low code was around and I, I remember uh, Microsoft had, I, I think it was called Access, which was a database, but it also had some kind of low-code environment that you could build stuff on. It was great. I shipped it with SolarWinds, yeah, absolutely. And, and this was great technology. But the downside of it then and today is that once you integrate that with the core processes of the enterprise, you start running the risk of blow-up. And so it starts with like very naive sort of thinking, oh, we just need to customize some, some form here. And it can get really stupid, really. And I, and I don't mean stupid as in, you know, somebody's fault, but stupid as in, oh, wow, I can't believe that just happened. Like you would change, I don't know, you change the order of some list as a customization and then not knowing that someone else's code actually needs that order. And all of a sudden you, you know, you just customized something and the whole, the whole system goes belly up and it costs the organization millions. Yeah. There's not even a good way to visualize it. I mean, it's, it's right. The complete wild west out there. Right. And, and so you look at that stuff and you go, wait a minute, that, you know, is risk. And that is a lot of, a lot of potential value to integrate what we know from our world outside of IT and marketing and in engineering and integrate that into those worlds that are equally important. And, and the trick is you can't get away with a CLI, right? You can't just say, oh, just learn. RTFM works for engineers. <laughs> Doesn't work for our, for, our, for our crowd base. You have to go the extra mile. You have to build the interfaces in with their experiences. You have to s focus on the use case rather than the technology because, because people are, you know, they come from different backgrounds. Nobody RF RTFMs anymore or RTFB is the other one. Right. Uh, if, the, if the knowledge isn't embedded in the product on the screen, we hardly ever go look for it. The, the value proposition for what you guys are doing is, is phenomenal. You, you reduce risk, you accelerate ROI and, and time to value, and you provide a mechanism to where that code is manageable long term, which, you know, if you don't do that, upgrades to ServiceNow can break things and there's no way to validate it. You know, if you haven't integrated a DevOps tool like Xtype and a test automation tool like a test reader, for example, um, and, and, and how you would ever hope to even consider uh, changing platforms it's just ridiculous. There's, there's, there's no way you can do that, right? So I'm sure their net dollar retention is sky high at ServiceNow. I haven't read lately the returns, but... Um, oh, they're very proud of it. And, and I, I'll give ServiceNow credit for being, for being a great company for what they do. And there's a reason they're so popular. It's because their platform really is very powerful and easy to, to adjust and do a lot of things. The, the question that some investors have asked me when we, we got started is, you know, I don't want to call it naive, but the natural question, so why doesn't ServiceNow solve this, right? 
And 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 so I remember back in the day working for Mercury Interactive, we built testing tools or test automation when we made a lot of money uh, selling test automation to Microsoft customers. And everybody asked, why doesn't Microsoft do it? And every year we get this panic that, yeah, they're going to release a testing tool, right? And they never did. I mean, by the time they did, it was way past IPO. And then I worked for Precise that, that you know, that we kind of both, both had seen. And I remember the same thing. Why doesn't Oracle build a monitor for Oracle? And now I'm seeing the same thing. And the, and the realization I've come to, and it's actually quite simple, is that while they understand the pain, it's not a business unit for them, right? The customers expect them to do as much as they can, but it's not what they sell. It's not, so actually companies like that are happy to have companies like us come in and pitch and help. They're very, uh, they're very good about that. Yeah, companies like ServiceNow and Microsoft are so ISV friendly, independent software vendor. And when you think about selling a product like that, most of the questions you get asked, you provide sort of a binary answer. Can I customize this workflow? Yes, you can. Can I build my own workflow? Yes, you can. It's only months or years later when you're using the application that you start to think, wow, is there a better way to do this? Is there a faster way to do this? Is there a safer way to do this? And that's when products like X-Type you know, come in. And I, I, my experience in selling enterprise software is you know, in, in some ways, you want to keep that initial sale as streamlined as you possibly can. You know, get that sale in, get a foot in the door, and continue to sell more products. And what I love about X-Type is it, it not only provides more value to the enterprise, but it also lends itself well to getting more use out of ServiceNow. I mean, a, an X-Type customer is going to be a, a very uh, valuable long-term and loyal customer to that platform because you're optimizing the value you get from the platform at large. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, actually our, our, our first customer, uh, HP in Israel was, was one of the most advanced, uh, service now customers. They're like on the cutting edge. They use all the new technology. They build a lot of stuff on service now. And so you're right that when you just get started, and I, I don't think a lot of organizations are particularly naive, a little bit, but not enormously. I, I credit ServiceNow for that. I mean, I'm a big fan. Organizations learn the value of the platform as they go, and then they invest more. So they usually start with ITSM, but then, you know, a year later, they would be doing customer service. And then they do other workflows. And I don't mean to be a you know, marketing horn for ServiceNow. They do a great job, but you see that happening. As customers grow their usage of the platform and the use cases get interlaced, at the code level, that's where my geek side comes out. You know, at the end, what you're talking about is integrated code that does different things but has influence. And I was there when we tested that stuff, and I was there when we did root cause analysis. And usually, you know, problems in the database happened with, to teams that had no idea that somebody else changed something. This is the classic. We have a lot of people working on here. You need to have visibility and you need to have automation in order to make these things streamlined and, and functioning well over years. I want to shamelessly point out one thing about X-Type that actually targets the developer itself on the ServiceNow platform, and that's our search engine. I remember <laughs> sounds anecdotal because there's many ways that you can search code in ServiceNow. ServiceNow is basically a, a, a database-based system. So if you want to search for stuff in ServiceNow, basically you'll have processes running on your instance in the database and finding things. But there are 
they're slow <laughs> and, they're, and, they, and they're not always efficient. And as we got going, one of the things we needed for ourselves, for our own development, was visibility, you know, quick <laughs> DevOps style, <laughs> right, into code. Why? Well, firstly, for troubleshooting, if some error pops up, I'll put it in and I'll just track it. Or sometimes for refactoring, just I want to change some, I want to change a, a function I just wrote and I just need to know where it's used, right? So I search that function and I find all of its occurrences or uh, documenting systems. And by the way, a lot of times, and we see this now with usage with customers, another anecdote that when all of a sudden we'll get a new name pop up and that new name, when new names come in with our customers, they always search a lot when they just get started. And it was a phenomenon that I didn't understand in the beginning, but now I know exactly what it is. It's exploratory code. When new people come into the team, they're new to the system. They might be, you know, 10 year veterans of service now, but they don't know your service now. And it's just a great way to explore it. So what we did essentially is we built, you know, a, a super fast search, you know, that works in milliseconds and has you know, all the Google properties of just you search, you find, and it happens very fast and it helps developers and it makes them very efficient. And it opens up the door to many use cases that later, you know, gets rolled into the CICD platform. Well, for anyone out there who's developing on ServiceNow, whether you work for a large enterprise or, or a smaller organization, you can go to edgetop.io. There's a free trial link you can check out. Ron would be glad to talk to you. Um, I'm super excited about the company, and I think you guys are really on a path to just accelerate rapidly um, as you go. And I love technologies that make geeks' lives easier. You know, maybe because I'm a geek myself, but you know, when when you're a developer or an IT practitioner or any sort of a high-end technologist, you know, you have a lot of, of people coming to you and asking for part of your day. And the days get longer and the hours get harder. And products like this that both increase your efficiency, save you time, and in many cases sort of sort of improve the the level of skill that you portray to people that, that are watching the work you do. You know, at SolarWinds, I always like to say that we make good engineers seem great and great engineers seem like gurus. And X-Type has that same capability. Um, it's a great way to get started. So I, I kind of wish I was working on ServiceNow right now so I could check it out and write some code. But I, I love the product. And I love what you guys are doing. Any, anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No, just maybe just a, a note, shout out to you. I've been following your podcast for a while before... Before we even met, oh, well, so thank it's you. a great pleasure, and I really appreciate you know uh, your partnership and and bringing me on here. This is this is great. Awesome. So. Well, I, I look forward to having you on again in a few months to talk about what's new, and and we'll go from there. But thank you so much, Ron. That's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.